We're going to be this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. So I encourage you to take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Matthew, chapter 9. And the verses we'll be looking at are verses 35 through 38. But to get a little bit of the context of what's going on in Matthew 9, I'd like to back up and read a couple of accounts that provide context for Jesus' ministry and what is happening in the verses that we will be examining this morning. So I'm going to actually back up to verse 18 and read all the way down through the end of the chapter to verse 38. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. We read these words. While he, talking about Jesus... Spake these things unto them. Behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose, and the fame hereof went abroad unto all that land. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when they departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. 
Our Father and our God, our privilege is to know you and to be known by you. And we thank you that you have committed to us this powerful message that we refer to as the gospel, the good news. And that it is something that we rejoice in because it is what has rescued our souls from the grave. And it is the message that brings us joy, which we in turn proclaim to the lost, a message they must hear and yield to. So we thank you that you displayed such great compassion on us. And I pray that you would move in our hearts this morning as we look to your word to have the same compassion for the lost, whether they be in our workplace or in our community or even in our own families, and that we would proclaim this message with great compassion, but also great zeal. For as Paul said, it is the power of God to salvation. We thank you for this time to look at your word and ask that you would bless it, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Clearly, you can see in this passage the heart of Jesus. I have never been in close proximity for a long period of time with a shepherd and sheep. But I have read about it. I have heard stories from people who are shepherds and who have explained how dealing with sheep can just be quite the process for them. Here is Jesus, in a sense, the shepherd of Israel. And he sees these people suffering under the curse, laboring under the curse. Obviously, Genesis 3 records what happened, (laughs) and the rest is history, as it were. The rest of human history is explaining where we are today and why we are where we are today. And ever since then, there has been heartaches in life. There's been people who have experienced deep trials, whether it be health crises or difficulties with family members or challenges with finances and issues with jobs, and the list goes on with all of the different difficulties and challenges that have happened because of the curse. And there's different personalities in life that deal with those problems. There are some people who are a little more stoic, They experience the problem of life and they just kind of have a stone face, don't have much of a reaction to it. And that's not a bad thing, it's just their personality. There's other people who respond with great anguish and turmoil of soul when those things happen. They're not sure what's going on, but the emotions of the moment, the emotions of the trial or struggles they're facing, it just wears on them and and they pour out their hearts when you ask them about it. And then there's other people who respond with a hard shell. People who say, I don't care what's going on, just leave me alone, leave me alone. And you probably know what your personality is. Jesus could have looked around at all of the crowds following him because they've heard his teaching, they've seen him healing, they've seen him training his disciples, they notice his background and where he's come from. Jesus from Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And they're just following him along with all the cares that are on their hearts, the burdens in their souls, the physical maladies they're experiencing. And it could be easy for Jesus, if his personality happened to be one of the stoicism, to just walk around and completely ignore it. I don't see what's going on. I'm not going to pay attention to it. Or Jesus could have said, well, that's their problem. 
I created the world. I spoke it out of nothing. I created everything. I gave them all the opportunity to, to have a relationship with me, to be faithful to me, and they blew it, so that's it. I'm done. <laughs> you, this, you're getting what you had coming. Sometimes, and I'll be perfectly candid with you, sometimes that's the, the way I tend to be when it comes to parenting. Is I warn the boys, don't do this or this will happen, and then they ignore me and go do it. And that happens, and then they come to me, you know, all upset. I'm like, I told you what was going to happen. <laughs> Jesus could have done that. He could have said, well, I, I knew what was going to happen, and you guys messed it up, so now here is your bed that you've made. You've got to lay in it. But that wasn't the heart of Jesus. Story after story we just read, starting at verse 18, we could have gone way further. We could have started chapters before this. But at least we start at verse 18, and story after story after story, we see Jesus not with a hard, stoic countenance, but with a heart of compassion. Regardless of what your personality is, regardless of what my personality is, there's something you and I have in common with our fellow comrade human beings. And that is that all of us are under the curse. All of us have pains and trials and things we've experienced in life or are experiencing or will experience in life. And if we don't have or exhibit the same kind of compassion that Jesus exhibited, I think we are doing not only those people a disservice by not displaying compassion, but that we are shaming the very name of our Lord, for that was not his heart. His heart was not that of a hard exterior. His heart was not of, I don't care about what you're going through. His heart was of deep, deep deep-seated compassion and empathy for these creatures that he made. And at the end of this gospel, before he leaves, he turns to his disciples and he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He gives to his disciples, who gives to their disciples, who gives to their disciples, and for the last 2,000 years until this very day have given to us the command to proclaim a gospel message. But I think the way in which we do it is also modeled by Jesus, and that is with compassion. So my point today from our text, I believe, is simply this, that just as Jesus displayed great compassion to as many people as he interacted with, you could see over and over and over again, story after story after story, he's interacting with people and not showing any kind of discrimination towards them, not saying, oh, you're not a Jew, so I'm not going to show you compassion. Oh, you're, you're somebody who did this in life? Well, I'm not going to do that for you. No, Jesus displayed great compassion to as many people as he interacted with. And just as he did so, I believe we are called to display that same gospel compassion to as many people as the Lord brings across our paths as well. That's my point today. And I believe that in the text that we have before us, which is verses 35 through 38, Jesus calls us, through his example, to display gospel compassion in four ways. And here are the four ways for you. Number one, he wants us to preach the gospel. That one is the no-duh statement of the day. Preach the gospel. Notice in verse 35, Jesus goes about all the cities and villages, 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom. You could cross-reference chapter 4, verse 23. This is the M.O. of Jesus. Jesus goes and preaches the gospel of the kingdom. After he's uh, tempted in the wilderness, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 23 of Matthew 4, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. That's almost word for word what it says in our text today in verse 35. In other words, Jesus consistently preached the gospel. Jesus consistently taught in the synagogues. Jesus consistently and compassionately displayed mercy and kindness in healing these people with all of their diverse sicknesses and ailments. This is something Jesus did over... This, this characterized his ministry. But his message was not one that people wanted to hear. And frankly, it's not one, as we proclaim it, that people want to hear now either. Because what was Jesus' message? The very first word in chapter 4, verse 17... Repent. You say, repent of what? Jesus is going out. People, people hear about this, this carpenter from Nazareth. He's going out. And they're like, we hear he's a great orator. We hear he's doing these amazing things. We've seen that he's done miracles. I mean, he turned water into wine at a wedding. And they say it was the best wine they ever drank. There are people who are lame who are walking again. There are people who are blind, but now they're seeing. We've got to go hear this guy. And, they, and they're all getting in. It's almost as if there's pews just sitting in the front here. Everyone's trying to get a front row seat because they're not Baptists. All the Baptists sit in the back. <laughs> they're trying to get as close as they possibly can to Jesus. And here he comes. Here comes Jesus, ready to proclaim this great message. And in the ancient world, one of the most important things to people was if you were a great orator, if you could speak with eloquence, then you were revered. You were believed to be by the people and in the eyes of the people, someone who is incredibly wise, a wise rabbi or teacher. So they're all sitting there waiting to hear his message. And the great speaker, the great teacher himself, Jesus, comes up before them and the first word out of his mouth, repent. Do you think that sat well with people? Because the word repent means to turn around you have a mindset where you are, you are believing one thing, you are going a certain direction, and repent says that's wrong. You need to turn around, change your mind, turn around and go the other way. Why should we repent, though? I mean, most people, I would say, in America today probably would say, I'm a good person. In fact, you could look up studies if you want to. There are plenty of people in the United States today who think they're on their way to heaven, and the question you ask them is, well, how do you know? And their answer, well, I'm a good person. I, I've done good things. I mean, I've, I've given money to people who need it. I've, I've gone to church. I, I was baptized when I was little. I was raised in a Christian home where my parents claimed to be Christians. All of these things that they say are good. In other words, if you tell them, why are you going to heaven? The only answer they can give is, I'm good. And Jesus' first, first word out of his mouth when he preaches is, repent. And the implications are, you're not good. You are a sinner in the eyes of a holy God. 
the gospel message that Jesus proclaimed, I believe, did not hold any bars. Jesus did not pull punches. He did not hold back from his gunfire. He lit them up with the truth. And the gospel message that we see in Scripture, that the, the apostles proclaimed in the early church, that the reformers in the 16th century tried to vehemently bring back to bear in Christianity, is that there is a God who exists in perfect holiness, that he is separate from his creatures, that he is pure and righteous, and he created us to have a fellowship with him, a relationship with him that was for all eternity to be one of bliss and joy. But man has violated God's holy law. In the garden, Adam and Eve had the choice whether or not they would obey the law of the Lord or whether or not they would choose to rebel against him. And of course, through the beguilement of a serpent, Satan himself, they chose to rebel against God. And I was reading last night before bed, Genesis chapter 3 again, and just underlined these words in my Bible because they're, I think they're more powerful than we recognize when it comes to describing the gospel. In Genesis 3, beginning in verse 22, it says, And the Lord God, Yahweh God, said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand to take hold also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And then here's the words underlined in verse 24. So he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way, again I underline these words, to keep the way of the tree of life. Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God next to the tree of life until they rebelled. And God says, you have lost your privilege of being in my presence and you have lost the privilege of life itself. So he drove out the man. And he placed a cherubim, an angelic creature with a flaming sword that turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. No longer are we permitted to know life. No longer are we permitted in the presence of the giver of life. God is holy. He has made us to enjoy his holy presence, but unfortunately, we violated his holy law, and as a result, the justice of God is being on display right now, right this very moment. There may be some in this room right now who, whether you cognitively are aware of it or not, are under the justice and judgment of God. And the justice of God demands that rebels be punished for their rebellion against him. It's a message that nobody wants to hear. And you may be sitting in here thinking, well, that's not a very loving message in our 21st century to proclaim. No, it's not. (laughs) It doesn't sound that way anyways in the eyes of the world. The justice of God cannot be violated. God's holy nature, his transcendent, majestic, pure, holy nature cannot be compromised. Which means 
that when Jesus said, repent, he wasn't joking. He wasn't saying, well, repent on your terms. There's many ways to God. There's many different religions. All of us have pieces of the one true religion, really. There is... There was ancient heretics who believed that, you know, you could combine all of the different truths of various religions together and come to the one true religion that there is. So in some senses, then, they thought there really is multiple ways to get to God. But that wasn't the message Jesus proclaimed. His message was instantly, you are a sinner condemned by God, and your response must be to repent. But here's the problem. How can we repent when we don't want God? Right? There are so many people today who say, I don't believe that there's a God. And you know why? Because where is he? I don't see him anywhere. And that's something that Peter said. We looked at this last time, a Sunday or two ago. Peter says there's people who are going to say, hey, where's the sign of his coming? Didn't your Messiah, Jesus, dude, didn't he say something about he's going to come back? Well, where is he? I don't see him anywhere. Everything continues just like it's been. Most people today think if I saw a handwriting in the sky, if I had an audible voice of God speaking in my ear, if I had some kind of sign that God could manifestly display that he exists and that the things that are recorded in this book are true, then I will believe. But Jesus did do that in his day. Jesus was the display of the very words of God. He made a girl who was dead live again. He made two blind men who could not see, see. He made a woman who had a disease of blood for 12 years healed in a moment. And he went through all of the regions of Galilee and Judea, healing every sickness, every disease among the people. I can't do that, can you? Only God can do that. Jesus displayed manifestly who he is. Did the people then believe him? Oh, he healed people. He made people raised from the dead. He's a really good teacher. He must be God. His message to repent then, I believe. Was that the response of the people? No, Jesus was nothing more than a clown show to them. They wanted him to entertain them. And the moment he didn't do what they wanted him to do, come in and rid them of the empire of the Roman people, they immediately turned on him a week later, less than a week later, and had him crucified, a cruel, torturous death. See, the problem here is not with the teaching of Jesus. The problem here is not that God hasn't given us sufficient revelation to know the truth. The problem is in us. There is a blackness in your heart and in my heart that apart from God will condemn us. Because when we fell in sin, our hearts no longer wanted God. In fact, that was what Paul said. People who are in the flesh, he said, cannot please God. Which is exactly why when people say, well, I think I'm going to heaven because I did good things. If you're not saved, you can't do good things in the sight of God. 
Jesus proclaimed a message that was not popular, but he gave them this message that was good news. The word gospel means that, good news. And it's the gospel, it says, of the kingdom. Did you know that Jesus is a king? One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 24. Because in Psalm 24, God is described as a king in those verses. And the the gates of the city are called upon to praise their king as he comes through them. In Psalm 24, it says, Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. When Jesus comes to proclaim a message of the gospel of the kingdom, he's talking about a kingdom in which he himself is the king. And in a great manifestation one day, he will be the everlasting king of kings and lord of lords. So, Jesus' message was repent. Not one we want to hear, but how do we repent? And here's the answer. You know the rest of the story of the gospel probably. How Jesus was betrayed by Judas. How Jesus went through a torturous ordeal in which people were lying about him. People were saying things that didn't even make sense about him. His friends, his disciples that he mentored abandoned him. He was beaten, a crown of thorns placed on top of his head, and he uttered not a word. And eventually they outstretched his arms on a crossbeam in which he was crucified to the delight of a raging crowd. And when he gave up his last breath, everybody there thought it was over. Maybe he wasn't really the Messiah. Maybe he really was a lunatic. He's dead now. But there were some people who saw things that they knew were not normal. The centurion saw Jesus give up his life on the cross, crying out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And as he gives up his spirit, that centurion says, Truly, this was the Son of God. People who were in the temple heard an earthquake and saw the veil that separated man from the presence of holy God ripped from the top to the bottom where the holy of holies, the most holy place, was now exposed for all the world to see at the death of Jesus. And the disciples and some women bury his body, assuming that it's over. But three days later, on the first day of the week, some women come to the tomb to see the grave that he had been buried in. The stone had been rolled away. The guards are gone because people were afraid. The, the, the ruling people were afraid that the disciples might come steal his body. And Jesus was gone. And an angelic messenger says, why are you here? What are you doing here? He told you he's not going to be here. He's risen. Go tell his disciples. He's risen as he said. And then he sees his disciples and they believe and he's seen among 500 people at once and they believe and then he ascends up to the right hand of the Father and for the last 2,000 years of church history, his people, Christians, have been proclaiming that message that Paul says is the power of God to salvation. 
Jesus died and rose again, and the command for us is to believe by faith. So the question, obviously, for us, if Jesus were preaching this message himself, his words would be, repent. And your response, hopefully, would be, how? And he would say, by believing me and what I did for you. This is the the message Jesus gave. It was a message that nobody wanted to hear then. And 2,000 years later, it's still a message nobody wants to hear. But thankfully, it's the message we've been given to proclaim And it's the message that is going to bring about the salvation of his people. So he preached the gospel, and that's what we should do too. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? Actively shared the gospel. Jesus did it as his lifestyle. Of course, he was an itinerant preacher. Most of us in this room are not. But you still have the responsibility as a Christian to model what Jesus did. Are you proclaiming the gospel? When was the last time you did that? The second thing he did, and I'll just mention this briefly, is that he taught the Bible. And that's what he calls us to do. Teach the Bible. Verse 35, Jesus went into the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. What is he teaching? It's not philosophy. Of course, it is a type of philosophy, and I'm sure he was interacting with the thought leaders of his day, but ultimately, what was he doing in a synagogue? The synagogue is where the scriptures were read and taught. So when Jesus goes and he reads a passage from Isaiah and he, says, he sits down and says, this day, this passage has been fulfilled in your, before your eyes. Jesus is teaching the word of God. The world today doesn't want to hear the word of God, just as they don't want to hear the gospel message. Churches today are trying to get away from the clear, vibrant, powerful teaching of the word of God because it's boring Why go to a church where all they're going to talk about is this ancient book? Why not go to a church where the pastor's cool and hip, where the music is going to be very shallow, the words will be shallow, there's no depth to them? Why would we go somewhere where someone is, is going to be preaching a Bible sermon? I want to hear stories. I want to be entertained. That's what the world wants. That's what the people in Jesus' day wanted. They wanted entertainment. But we as God's people know that as his sheep, we must be fed. We are spiritual creatures and we must be fed with the food of his word, which is why we gather together on Sundays to hear not Rodney talk, not some other random guy just talk, but hopefully somebody explaining this book, what it means word by word, verse by verse, and what it means for my life, how I ought to live. That's what Jesus did. He taught the the scriptures. Parents, you have the immense privilege of teaching your kids the holy writings. Laura has been working with the boys on memorizing Psalm 19, or excuse me, Psalm 1. I've, I've been memorizing Psalm 19. Psalm 1. And it's so neat to see them having that in their minds at this young age. Parents, this is the time to do it. But frankly, parents, this should be something we're doing too. Like adults, generally speaking, a lot of times we're like, hey, make sure those kids and kids for truth are memorizing Bible verses. Make sure those teenagers are memorizing Bible verses so they can get some scholarship to go to camp. What about you? Are you memorizing the word of God? Are you trying to dig and mine the depths of the riches of this wonderful book? 
Are you as a teacher trying to be faithful to the words in it? Jesus did. He went to the synagogues and he taught the scriptures. Hopefully when we have people come to our services, they hear not the opinions of a man, but they hear the expositions, the drawing out of God's word. Third, Jesus displayed compassion, and therefore I believe we as well should display compassion. He displayed compassion for their physical needs. In verse 35, it says he was healing every sickness and every disease among the people. This is where sometimes we conservative Christians can get a little uncomfortable. Because in the early 1900s, there were people who were proclaiming what they called the social gospel, which idea essentially is saying we need to be going and helping humanitarian needs, you know, going in and helping people who are poor, feeding people who are hungry, clothing people who don't have clothing, things like that. But they were basically just doing that. They were saying that's what Christianity is, and we know that Scripture is more than just feeding the people who are hungry and giving clothes to people who don't have clothes and helping people in humanitarian crisis. The gospel is, is what Jesus proclaimed. But we can sometimes forget that Jesus also did heal the sick. He fed 5,000 people who were hungry. He had compassion on the physical needs of these people. We, I think, as Christians, need to display that same kind of compassion. In fact, I believe that Jesus was doing so, obviously, to display who he was. Only God can make a blind person see. Only God can raise somebody who is dead back to life. So he was displaying that he truly is God. But Jesus was also the God-man displaying compassion for other humans and humanity. Should we not do the same? We've experienced the same needs. We see the kindness of Jesus in his word. Should we not display that same kind of compassion for the physical needs of other people? As a congregation, should that not be our concern as we see people in our own congregation who have various physical needs or things like that? Should we not be showing that same kind of concern and care for them? But Jesus didn't just focus on their physical needs. He focused on the spiritual. Verse 36, you'll see, he saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion on them, not because they didn't have food, not because they weren't clothed, not because they were sick, but he says because they fainted. You may have a newer translation that says they were weary. They were in angst. And they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. What is, what is this saying here? What is Matthew trying to communi- communicate to us? The eyes of Jesus as he looks at the people around him. Jesus sees a people whose spiritual leadership was bankrupt. Jesus sees all of the needs of these people. And what were those spiritual leaders doing? Nitpicking every little detail about him. Go back to verse 34. After Jesus cast out a, a demon out of somebody, the multitudes who saw it, they marvel. But what does the spiritual leadership do? Verse 34, they're like, ah, he's just casting out the devil through the prince of the devil. He's in league with Satan. Rather than marveling at the work and power of Almighty God, they dismiss it. It's not a big deal. Not important. They missed the word, incarnate word of God, before their very eyes. 
And now Jesus looks at these people and he sees them as sheep having no shepherd. The spiritual leaders were failing them. And he's moved with compassion for their spiritual needs. Are you as well? There are people in your life, whether it's in this congregation or in your family or your friend group, who you know are walking through deep waters, who are in pain emotionally through things they're experiencing, who are spiritually wrestling through various things. You know the hope to give them. You know that we as Christians, when we go through these things, we are experiencing a spiritual battle, and so are they. And you can say, here is the hope I have. Why art thou disquieted within me, O my soul? Why art thou downcast and disquieted within me? Hope in God. Why do I feel as though Satan is attacking me? Because he is. The Lord tells us that he has these fiery darts that he's throwing at you. But guess what? He's given you the shield of faith so that you can quench those fiery darts. Do you see how we can see the spiritual needs of other people and we have the answer for them? So Jesus displayed great compassion for physical needs and spiritual needs. But then he gives a call in verses 37 and 38, and that is for us to fervently pray. He looks to his disciples after seeing these people, after healing the sick, after teaching in the synagogues, after preaching the gospel, and he says, look, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Often in Scripture, when you see the term harvest, it's not talking about like, like what we often think about when we think of this verse, the harvest of souls at salvation. Oftentimes, it's the harvest of judgment. That, that God says, I am going to put in my sickle and I'm going to thrust it in and I will bring about my harvest of judgment on the people who are wicked and rebels to my law and way. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying there is a harvest of souls that will only be done through the power of the preaching of the gospel. But the problem is there's not enough laborers. Where are the people proclaiming the message? Jesus is the only one right here. He's got 12 followers who admittedly they're in, they're in the moment of training, so there's that. But who else is proclaiming this message of Jesus? Nobody. He's the only one. And so he says, look at these people. Look at the crowds. The harvest is plenteous. But where are the laborers? Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus said, pray to God for more laborers, not pray that you'll be able to convince people to trust Jesus and make the harvest bigger. Because ultimately, the harvest belongs to God. Who comes to faith in Jesus? belongs to Almighty God. Our responsibility is to be the laborers and proclaim that message that he uses to bring about his harvest. Where are those people? Where is it in Rodney King's life? Where is it in your life? We have so many people, I'm sure, in this room, in the churches in this city, in the churches in our country, in the churches in the world, who aren't fervently praying to the Lord of the harvest for more laborers. And 
who themselves, myself included, aren't being the laborer. Where are the laborers for the harvest of God? We are simply called to be the laborer, to gather the ears of corn. That's what we're doing. We trust God to bring about the increase. We, water, we plant, we water, we trust God to bring the increase. But where are the laborers who are going to pick the corn? That doesn't mean going into, the, the, you know, going into a, a foreign country and, and learning a different language. That's not Jesus' point, although sometimes that's what we get in our minds when we read those verses is, oh boy, that's about people who need to go into foreign countries and be missionaries. No, it's not just that. It's us being the laborers. Some of you have workplaces where it's, it's a very difficult environment for proclaiming the gospel, but ultimately, your responsibility is to be the laborer. So build relationships with your coworkers so that maybe after work, you could say, hey, can, can you come over to my house and we can just talk and have fun? Some of you guys have, have family members that you know don't know the Lord. Are you being the laborer, proclaiming the message so that the Lord can bring about his harvest? You parents with your children, that's like a little field right there. Are you being a laborer for your children? Being a laborer of the gospel of Jesus Christ and watching God bring the harvest in your children's lives. Do you see how this is more than just being a foreign missionary? This is praying for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers and to bring about the harvest. Is that what we're doing? As Christians then, we need to model what Jesus did. All of this was couched with an attitude of compassion. Do you have that same attitude as a Christian in proclaiming the message that Jesus proclaimed and that we are called to proclaim till he comes? Let's pray. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to preach the gospel, to teach your word, to display compassion and to fervently pray to you for the harvest. Help us to be the laborers you call us to be. Help us to trust the yield of our harvest into the hands of a sovereign God. Lord, I pray for any person in this room who does not know Jesus as his or her Savior, that they would yield to the gospel and be part of the great harvest that you are bringing about in bringing lost souls to yourself. And as Christians, Lord, I beg of you that you would move in us, remove any kind of coldness we have to you or to your word, and instead give us a fervent, compassionate desire to proclaim the message that is the power of God to salvation with fervency and joy, knowing that we have experienced it and we long to see that same joy in other people. All of this, Lord, to the praise and exaltation of your name. Amen.